This is Chris McGregor with information on how you can help Discerning Hearts continue our mission during our summer appeal. It costs $90,000 per year to keep things going, and praise God, we are over halfway there. Any donation, any amount, helps us to continue our work. Please prayerfully consider helping us. It's been a blessed year so far, thanks to the generosity of so many. We are funded 100% by those touched by the work of Discerning Hearts. So, between now and August 15th, if you can help with a donation or with your prayers, it would be greatly appreciated. You can donate by clicking on the link found on the DiscerningHearts.com website or inside the Discerning Hearts free app. Thank you, and God bless from all of us at Discerning Hearts. DiscerningHearts.com presents... Christian Apologetics with Dr. R. R. Reno. Dr. Reno is the editor at First Things, a journal of religion, culture, and public life. He has also served as a professor of theology at Creighton University. His theological work has been published in many academic journals. Essays and opinion pieces on religion, public life, contemporary culture, and current events have appeared in Commentary and The Washington Post. He's also the author of numerous books, including Fighting the Noonday Devil. This series explores numerous facets of faith and reason in the life of the church and the world. Grounded on the work of giants such as St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Bonaventure, Blessed John Newman, Blessed John Paul II, G.K. Chesterton, Blaise Pascal, and Stephen Barr, Dr. Reno helps us to open our minds to make the journey to our hearts. Christian Apologetics with Dr. R. R. Reno. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome, Professor Reno. A pleasure to be on the show. I am very excited about today's show because we're talking about St. Bonaventure and his influence, in particular his writings, The Journey into the Mind of God. I'm paraphrasing it, I'm sure, because of the translations. But until we entered this study, I was not aware of St. Bonaventure. I, I did not know very much about him. And then learning about his life and reading him, what a remarkable figure in the church. He's matched up in Dante's um, Divine Comedy in Paradise. He and St. Thomas Aquinas are paired together. St. Thomas is, uh, is named, is called the Angelic Doctor, and St. Bonaventure is the Seraphic the Doctor of the Church. And in and, and the scene, it's a really wonderful, marvelous scene because there the, uh, St. Bonaventure was a Franciscan and St. Thomas was a Dominican. And so in a wonderful kind of scene, and Franciscans and Dominicans didn't always get along in the uh, uh, sort of competitive nature of these two orders, both founded roughly at the same period of time in the late 12th century. Um, you know, maybe a few years prior to the birth of uh, Thomas Aquinas and uh, and St. Bonaventure. So, but it's wonderful, though, because Dante pictures them engaged in an argument about who was the greatest saint of the church. And St. Thomas argues that it was St. Francis, and St. Bonaventure argues that it was St. Dominic. So it's a wonderful (laughs) moment of sort of fraternal unity. Uh, And it also speaks to the fact that both St. Thomas 
in St. Bonaventure were university professors that were engaged in disputations. So how do you take just disputation and turn it into a, a moment of charity as part of Dante's genius to have them argue the other, the other, other, the other order's man, so to mm-hmm. speak. So it's a beautiful moment, but it also testifies to the, um, to the fame of St. Bonaventure, um, in, in, in his own, in his own day. And then in the centuries, uh, afterwards, but you're right though. He has fallen out of, uh, the spotlight, so to speak. I think our other shows, when we kind of work through St. Thomas's arguments, we could really put our finger on what he was trying to tell us about how to think about things. It's much more difficult to do that with St. Bonaventure. He's, I think of him as kind of drawing these exquisite maps of how to orient yourself, St. Bonaventure does, as opposed to giving you um, clear directions. Mm-hmm. So how do you travel? Well, you go to MapQuest and you can get directions. Turn right here and then go left there and then go two blocks. And then, and that's, I think, St. Thomas, as opposed to the, the map, which is, uh, which is St. Bonaventure. Um, you know, and some sure. of us are suited via this sort of visual uh, way. We love maps, and reading directions is confusing. Others of us don't interpret maps very well, and we need to have those written directions. So um, I think typically when we engage in intellectual work, we, we prefer the written directions. You know, how do we solve this problem? Well, first you, you know, first you divide out this, and then you do that, and then you multiply by this. And you can see the way we appro- approach math problems. Mm-hmm. as opposed to um, approaching math, maybe uh, some folks who did proofs in geometry or something, they they can sympathize with the idea of, wow, you know, that wasn't very helpful because I couldn't visualize what this was really all about. So we want those, we want the kind of recipe to get us where we need to go. St. Bonaventure is a visualizer. That's my uh, take on it. So as a result, he just doesn't go fit into our kind of analytic, deductive way of approaching intellectual problems in, in the modern era, whereas St. Thomas does, and he's more usable, more useful, more helpful for that kind of what I would think of as the ordinary work of reflection. But nonetheless, he's, um, he's a person well worth acquainting yourself with because he's, he has very rich and beautiful um, insights into uh, the relation of the mind to God. Well, if you forgive me this comparison, if it's a little outlandish, I found that after reading Thomas Aquinas and then reading Bonaventure, it was almost the same for me, the type of experience from reading the Synoptic Gospels and then reading the Gospel of John. Well, that's a great, that's a great analogy, and I think there's, there's something to that. You know, um, I think the Gospel of John is, uh, uh, certainly has these, you know, water, um, bread, um, it, it's, it's very powerful images that um, seem to uh, p- uh, provide a kind of density to its picture of Jesus in, in contrast to the Synoptic Gospels that sort of walk us through. So we walk with Jesus in a way in the Synoptic Gospels. We contemplate Jesus in the Gospel of John. And I think that that's true for St. Bonaventure also. Uh, uh, St. Thomas wants us to think clearly about the life of faith. Uh, Whereas um, St. Bonaventure definitely has a stronger contemplative dimension. He wants us to understand the contemplative aspect of our of reflection. And that you can find God and understand God in that contemplation. Yes. I mean, part of um, what's helpful when, we, uh, when I teach uh, this book is I like to tell the students some background about, uh, about St. Bonaventure because it's precisely this kind of issue that was controversial in his own day. 
I mean, St. Francis uh, famously, um, you know, uh, commitment to radical poverty uh, and, and uh, you know, contemplative prayer and these sorts of things, this did not lend itself to university studies. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody remembers being a student. You have to spend a lot of time with books. Uh, and, and so you're not, you know, so how can, how can, and more also it's a kind of, I don't know, education can be a, a kind of uh, temptation to a certain kind of pride you know, I know more, or I can solve these problems, and so on. So there was a whole faction in the Franciscan order, perhaps even the majority, who felt that university studies were, was not appropriate for people entering the Franciscan order, because it was inconsistent with this kind of commitment to prayer and poverty. And St. Bonaventure represented, he was part of the faction that, that obviously, as a university professor himself, he thought that they were, in fact, compatible. And so the journey is written in part to show how um, the intellectual life, our intellectual work, if you will, can be seen as a form of prayer or with the right contemplative attitude, that kind of work can have a prayerful dimension to it. So it wasn't that academic work prepares you for some doing, it's not a means to end thing where we, mm-hmm. oh yeah, do this academic work because we need to know what the answers are to give, defend the faith and so on. And then we can go on at once we defend the faith to pray what St. Bonaventure wanted to show was that academic work or uh, um, uh, the, kind of, the kind of use of the mind in its many dimensions has this capacity to uh, um, be illuminated by the presence of God uh, in creation, in ourselves, and then obviously the presence of God in the concept of God and in the revelation of God. How did this work, the journey? I have a different translation. I think it's itinerarium mentis in deum or something. Mm-hmm. So it's the journey, or the itinerary, or the journey of, and it's mentis, it's mind, not soul, not anima. So it's the journey of the mind uh, to uh, God. How did that come about? Some people do tr- translate into, partly because uh, once you read it, you realize that he thinks the final stage of the journey is, uh, is a kind of fellowship with, the, uh, with God. Um, so that you 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 enter into the heavenly rest of eternal life. So that's the into dimension that some translators add to it. Yeah, it reminds me in some ways of the interior castles. That it's that journey that Teresa of Avila. It's, it's going inwardly. Yeah, you get um, the journey motif is is uh, very very powerful uh, throughout the Christian tradition. Um, I mean, you've got Saint Augustine's Confessions are is a journey. Um, you know, the heart is restless until it finds its rest in God. Mm-hmm. And so the soul journeys, right? Uh, and then for the Augustine story, it, it, he journeys, journeys fruitlessly, right? <laughs> right? Um, but then you have, uh, you have um, Johannes Climacus, the, the, uh, uh, the famous um, uh, monk uh, Sinai, 7th century, uh, the ladder uh, to God, the divine ladder to God, picking up on Jacob's ladder image as climbing up to God. And then, you, as you pointed out, um, St. Teresa of Avila's interior castle. Um, so you have different ways in which people try to provide, if you will, some kind of uh, map or visualizing map of the movement of the self uh, to God. And this is, this is his particular way. Now, he divides it up into three basic components. Seeing God in and through the world, 
uh, seeing God in and through the self, and then seeing God in and through God himself. So it's a kind of looking outward, looking inward, looking upward are the three stages. Uh, at the end, he tells us that basically that what he has in mind is a church. And you enter the church, you know, and the first two stages, the first, because each one is in, is first through, then in, um, each each of those three dimensions, the first one is you enter the nave, then you you kind of go up the steps into the choir, and then you are, you get to the altar, and then the final seventh stage for his journey, so one and two is the nave, uh, three and four is the choir, uh, uh, five and six is you're at the altar, and then seven is you enter, in effect enter the tabernacle where the mm-hmm. where the uh, sacrament is being reserved. Um, so I mean that's of course you don't in real life enter that. I mean you can't because it's too small. You can't fit in there. Right. <laughs> yes. But that's part of the, um, I think the the symbolic or um, that the impossibility of doing that in 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 the in, in a kind of physical way does suggest, as he says us at the end, that there's a, that's the, the sort of deepest mystical dimension of the, of the journey, is the seventh stage. Um, so, so that's a kind of way in which he wants us to um, envi- envision making a journey. He, he clearly has that in mind. Um, also, uh, anybody who tries to read this is going to be extremely um, put off by the blizzard of terminology and uh, endless kind of digre- um, not digressions, but he'll he'll join together. He'll, he'll mention uh, always in pairs of three, um, or not always, but often pairs of three and and and, and six and seven. Mm-hmm. He'll give you these things, and they'll they'll be um, different powers of the soul, uh, different qualities of an act, or what have you. And what he's doing is he's taking all the all the things that the monk needs to know. That you, that you learn, and of mm-hmm. course, your education, metaphysics, psychology, uh, natural philosophy. He's taking all these elements, and he's placing them at different points in the journey. And uh, and one of the ways, so this is a text that's meant to be memorized, and not to be read, so that you have it at hand, so that when you're studying a certain topic, you go, ah, that's where I am in the journey, and so you can relocate yourself. Uh, because one of the ways that medievals memorized is they created uh, men- mental maps for themselves. So mm-hmm. you would place um, a certain knowledge. Uh, you know, it's going to be in the in the second side chapel of the uh, of of the church at the monastery where you are. So because you, you can recall the picture in your mind of the because you go in there and do your prayers. You know, uh, many times a day if you're a Benedictine monk. And so you can recall the picture, and then you, it's a mnemonic strategy to be able to recall things. You know which little side chapel it's in, and it's you know below the altar, on the altar, above the altar, what have you. And that lets you begin to get access to, um, to what you've stored away in your memory more, more reliably, more quickly, more, more deeply. Uh, we've lost that art in our society because we can just mm-hmm. Google <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating when you think about it because it really gives you imagery as well as the words. Yes, yes, and it kind of brings them together. So the word and the word becomes an image. It can become a person. It can become all these different things. We all know how a certain smell will trigger trigger a memory, or a, a, a certain sight will. So if you can take your five senses and join them up. 
of the things you need to memorize, then you 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 have you have five different ways of accessing that 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 bit of memory. I mean, this is you know, kids who are you know students who are preparing for MCAT. You know, uh, listen to this as as a as a way of uh, of maximizing your memory. It really does work. It's, it's quite extraordinary. Also, rhyme schemes. Think mm-hmm. about it. We can remember things because we know how they're supposed to end. We don't remember the whole sentence of uh, of the poetry, but we remember the final rhyme, and it lets us aha, boom, boom, boom. Um, so we we do obviously have these ways of, uh, and the medieval exploited these fa- facts about the human mind because paper was fabulously expensive, and um, I mean relative to today, it's sure. usually expensive, and uh, there are no printing presses. And so, you know, uh, there was not a lot of written material that you could rely on. So you had to keep a lot of stuff in your head. We'll return in just a moment to Christian Apologetics with Dr. R.R. Reno. Did you know that you can obtain a free app which contains all your favorite Discerning Hearts programs? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Archbishop George Lucas, Father Mauritius Fildi, and so many more, including episodes from Inside the Pages, can be obtained on the Discerning Hearts free app. This also includes all the novenas and devotionals and prayers, including the Holy Rosary and Stations of the Cross, the Chaplet of St. Michael, and the Seven Sorrows of Our Lady, all available on the Discerning Hearts free app. Visit the iTunes and Google Play app stores to obtain your free Discerning Hearts app today. A teaching of St. Paul to his letter to the Romans. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Never flag in zeal. Be aglow with the Spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in your hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good.
If you have been blessed in some way by the spiritual nourishment and teachings offered freely by all those involved with Discerning Hearts programs, please consider a positive review for the various programs on the iTunes and Google Play stores. This is a great way to help the ministry and is an encouragement to others who are seeking the best in spiritual formation to find and check out the programs. Won't you please help? It's an easy way to help give back and to be a part of the mission. Thank you and God bless from all at Discerning Hearts. We now return to Christian Apologetics with Dr. R. R. Reno. I found it fascinating reading him because it's as though there is every different way you could think something through or meditate or contemplate something as you discover it, whether this particular would fall over here. And if you're thinking about this particular aspect, or I feel deep within myself, or this is outside of myself, or this is what I see over here, and it all falls in to basically the revelation of God. He reveals himself in this way, even in a dimly obscure way. You can categorize that and say, this is another revelation of how he reveals himself. I think that it's probably helpful to kind of go to an example, and I think these early ones are, are, are the easiest ones. Uh, and they have to do with, I always, when I teach this, I try to get the students, we have so many, science is such an important part of a modern person's intellectual life. I try to use examples from science. So I think that's what he's talking about early on. He says that God reveals himself uh, uh, through and in the natural world. I mean, it's kind of a common thing, you know, the heavens proclaim the glory of God, so on. So this is a good biblical idea. But it's one thing to say, it's another thing to actually think about it. And so what he does is he looks at it and he says, huh, now when I go into the laboratory, he didn't say this, but this is me kind of translating out of his medieval way of talking because he uses a philosophical concepts that we don't use anymore. But he notices that there's, er, things have weight. We can measure them. Uh, so the world presents itself to us as, um, as something that, uh, that has uh, specificity. Uh, you know, you go into the room and it's got chairs in it, you can count them. Oh, there's 12 of them, or there's 20 of them. So the world presents itself to us as a determinate thing that is, you know, real. And not real in some vague sense, but in a quite specific sense that we can engage. Um, and, and this kind of, so in that sense, the world is a kind of creative and that he links this up, I think, uh, with uh, the fatherhood of God. God as a source. God as uh, being able to make an impression. He notices that the world is like that, and our, our brains are like that, too. They're capable of receiving and being impressed mm-hmm. um, or being shaped by the world. We can Not only are, are the chairs countable, but we can actually count them. So there's a nice interlocking kind of way in which uh, the givenness of the world is uh, accessible to us. And he, that's, a, um, I think he sings that in terms of a, the father, source, RK, um, you know, uh, uh, God is the creative source of all things. Uh, but also, the world is not just the chairs, the fact that they're countable and we can organize them. We can theorize. We don't theorize about chairs, but we collect data in the lab and, and it, we, we see it, it's got various patterns and we begin to theorize about it. It's intelligible. It's interpretable, the world. Mm-hmm. So there's a kind of logos, a kind of Greek word that means um, reason. There's a kind of reason to it. 
and that this is uh, this is you know um, uh, the Son, the Eternal Son, by whom uh, all things were made. Um, you know, Gospel of John. Um, in the beginning was the Word, and God creates through the Word. Uses the Word, uses the Logos um, as the principle of creation. And then finally, the third the third element about the world is that we can not just analyze it, but we can um, evaluate it. We can say that um, that this species is more uh, well developed than this, than this other species. This one species is more complex than another species, or this particular uh, species, uh, res- you know, responds more intelligently to stimuli than another species. So we, we can make judgments, and that this ju- that these judgments uh, reflect the the kind of um, movement of creation back. To, to, uh, to its source and highest purpose, which he associates then with the Holy Spirit, the kind of perfecter, um, the one, the sanctifier. Uh, so well, what he's done here is he's taken, I, I call it scientific activity, but he's talking about just a kind of intellectual training about the natural world that everybody gets. You know, In his day, it wasn't our kind of experimental science. It was this more observational Aristotelian science. But let's just leave that aside and just say, let's just call it science. We're trained scientifically to engage the world. He's not saying that if we engage the world, we pray while we're studying, as if they're two different activities. Instead, he's saying, look, b- become more aware of what's actually happening while you're, st- while you're studying, while you're in the laboratory, and you'll realize that your, your mental activities are um, have in them these... Uh, uh, these vestiges or these dimensions of the divine reality that they're pointing to the divine reality. Um, it's not God in the, in the data, mm-hmm. right? God is separate from the world, but nonetheless that this data has the finger of God on it. Um, and the way that it interacts with your mind and the way that we theorize and so forth and the way in which we make these judgments, uh, reflect the nature of God. So that way the monk, when the, when the Franciscan is sort of, you know, taking studiously, taking notes and sort of going, oh, geez, I have to now, or we today go, I have to go to the lab now. Um, we can realize that, that this is a kind of habituation of the soul uh, that we're undergoing in, in that kind of intellectual work that is, is, uh, is, is, has the same structure, if you will, as the life of prayer. I think it's very interesting in those threes that he uses so often, whether it's threes or sixes, in different groupings, that he brings forth that whole body, mind, and soul, and how we come to know and deepen in that understanding through those three different areas. Well, so the body concerns the external world that's looking outward. Mm -hmm. The mind is the internal world looking inward. And then the soul, if you will, of theology is looking upward um, to God. And, um, and so those are the three different dimensions of the journey. And he, then, as, as I was saying, he divides each of those three into twos um, to create the six. So you look, you look, you look through the world, in the, into the world, through the soul, into the soul, uh, through God, into God. So it all seems just kind of crazy. I, I, you know, I teach this and the students, you know, their kind of eyes uh, spin, you know, or if they're not glazing over, but... They're, they're kind of spinning, thinking, oh, my gosh, what am I supposed to do with all this? Uh, Bonaventure does tell his own readers early on in, in, in the first chapter, 
he warns them that this is not a book to be um, to be read as if, but it's a book to be uh, kind of revisited. So you're supposed to sort of you're supposed to return to it at least in your mind the, these insights. So you could think of it as if uh, you know I want to encourage listeners to get a copy and 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 read it and then realize that um, uh, like I say this is a map and so you. When you're when you're visiting Rome or something, making your pilgrimage, uh, you're not looking at the map the whole time. You want to look at the map to kind of reorient yourself. And it's similar. This is a similar thing. You want to you want to realize as you're reading it. And also, one of the things I've always found with maps is that uh, very hard to make much. You can they're not very meaningful to me until I actually go there, mm-hmm. and then I can the reality and the map match up in important ways. And so similarly, the journeys, the uh, itinerarium, his, his, his little book here, has the same function. It can seem very kind of strange and remote uh, because we're not actually engaged in the activity mm-hmm. of, of, um, of doing the scientific work, say, or, or thinking about psychology or whatever it might be. Um, and so he wants us to sort of, like I say, he wants us to memorize it, which I certainly haven't done. It would be quite a task to try to do. But to have some of these concepts and categories floating around in our mind so that they, when, when we're doing our intellectual work, we go, oh, aha, uh-huh, and we feel the connection. Uh, just as if you're looking at a map and you, you, you're lost or, 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 or the map sort of points out that just around the corner is some famous church. And you go, oh, oh this is perfect. Now I, can, I can go and see it. For me, Bonaventure, it brings color to the whole discussion where in some ways it can be just very black and white. He he gives you a world of color because there's so many different aspects to it. And as you and and it's endless in its combinations essentially and all and and how you <laughs> assimilate it. It's just it's quite wonderful actually. Yeah, and I think that um like I said, uh my students are are very perplexed by this. Um and justifiably so, in part because we're sort of trained to think that think things through, you know. In other words, we, we're not trained to sort of look at things and sort of contemplate them. Uh, you don't, we don't tend to think of um, something important intellectual insight is like, a, is like a gem that we turn and see all the different facets and the light pass through the different facets. We tend to think of, again, this is back to this idea of the set of directions. We tend to think, well, what's the point? And obviously, you get the diamond and you start turning the diamond. There is no point. There's no there's no place where you're supposed to stop, mm-hmm. right? You're, right. I mean, you're supposed to keep contemplating it, and it's all these different facets, and and, and it's beauty, and and um, and it's a similar, uh, um, I think, uh, kind of approach that Bonaventure is encouraging us to take with respect to God's, to the our, the capacity of our reflection, our intellectual capacity, our minds in its broadest sense of the term. Because uh, it includes imagination as well as um, kind of what we think is more rigorous, more rigorous intellectual work, but the capacity of our mind to um, to to be to uh, to to bring us into the presence of God. So it's a, it's limitless. I mean, I think in in a literal sense, there it is quite limitless. We're not limitless, mm-hmm. but um, the 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 different avenues to God through the mind are 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 multifaceted, you know. You couldn't begin to sort of, sort of, prioritize. Although each of us, I think, individually tends to have intellectual gifts and habits that we prefer, which is fine. I think, um, 
you know, you can't be all, you can't be all things uh, and have all, all the different avenues at once. Uh, but I do think it's beneficial. And one good reason I think for folks to pick up the book and, 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 and work with it a little bit is that it's very wise, I think, to um, stretch yourself and recognize that there are these many other different ways in which we have access to divine truth. Thank you, Professor Reno. Thanks. You've been listening to Christian Apologetics with Dr. R. R. Reno. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for Christian Apologetics with Dr. R.R. R. Reno.